Okay, can we turn to Galatians chapter 4, please? Or as Alfred Hitchcock and Pastor Brown say, good evening. I neglected to mention publicly thank you to Brian Messick for the message that he delivered so splendidly on June 7th, and I'm almost finished listening to it. He's his own worst critic. That happens with preachers. You have to pray for him that they might think they're, they fouled up on some things when nobody else does, including the triune God. So you can explain that to me sometime. Okay, good to see everybody. Let's take a couple moments. Preparation. Father, grant us understanding. Amen. Galatians chapter 4. Generally speaking, not a slave, but a son would be the name if it was a topical message. Not a slave, but a son. And I want to gather up quite a bit of scripture here tonight. And I hope that you'll be able to endure it. Because we're going to go back and gather up everything almost from 3.15 on to illustrate a point. Galatians chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Now what I'm saying, Paul speaking, continuing the analogy here from common human interactions. He's been working on this analogy since all the way back in Galatians 3.15. It's extremely important that we understand this for many reasons. And the analogy is to the common human interaction, legal interaction of a last will and testament in which an heir may be an heir until a certain age, but until he reaches the appointed time set by the father, that heir has no different status than that of a slave or a servant in the household as was often the custom back then. And so Paul is referring here, and I want to take off right from here. There are ten little phrases I want you to see before we get through tonight. Now what I'm saying is this. And again, he's going back to an analogy from common human interactions, which he set in motion all the way back in 3.15. So I want to take... 315 onward in my translation that was developed over the low, slow crawl these past few weeks. And I want you to notice phrases like until the coming of the seed. It's a temporal idea, until the coming of the seed, a historical idea. Or before the faithfulness came, as we'll pick up that phrase in this little passage or until the apocalypse of the coming faithfulness. So he's dealing with something up to a particular time and then something from that time onward 
a drastic change in eons, a drastic change in epochs, a drastic change in humanity, in creation, in history. Until the apocalypse of the coming faith, we'll be seeing, until Christ came, which is the same thing as we've seen, a phrase like, now that faithfulness has come, Paul then looks back on the completion of an appointed time. We'll also see a phrase going into Galatians 4, until the set time appointed by the Father. Again, all taking up this analogy. The phrase, when we were once minors, M-I-N-O-R-S. And then finally, the climax of all of Galatians, in fact, of all of Scripture, God sent his Son in the fullness of time. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us. And we will show that that us is the whole of humanity once again. So here he is, back in 315. He says, siblings, I'm about to use an illustration from human dealings. This, again, is what he referred to all the way up in 4.1. This is an exercise in trying to think like Paul, hold a thought as long as the apostle does, which is quite a strain. I'm about to use an illustration from human dealings. No one nullifies or adds a codicil to a last will and testament that has been confirmed. That's in everyday dealings. A testament or a last will was once it's confirmed or legally ratified, then there is no adding of a codicil that in any way disannuls that contract. And Paul is likening that to the promise and the law. Verse 16, now the promises, that's one promise reiterated to Abraham, first uttered by God himself directly to Abraham, in which he said, in you all the nations will be blessed. An unconditional promise with a universal horizon. And as he made the promise again, he clarified a point and fine-tuned a point. In you, that is, in your seed, all the nations will be blessed. The unconditional promise with a universal horizon becomes radically Christocentric. It is Christology. Paul's Christology takes up everything. And he has a radical Christology, a radical Christocentricity. So he said, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. And then it says he, now that could either be God or the scripture, because back in 3.8, it was the scripture that pronounced that gospel. He, or we could say the scripture personified, does not say and to seeds. You should recall that. Plural, as if referring to many. On the contrary, he says, and to your seed, referring to one. One becomes a big deal here, as it does later, when he says God is one. Referring to one, and if you compare this with Romans 5, 15 to 19, he's talking about the one man whose obedience and whose righteous act rendered all the human race delivered, liberated, and transformed. One, 
who is Christ. I put that all in caps because that's really the heart of the matter. Then he says in verse 17, this is what I'm saying. The law which came 430 years later, speaking of the pronouncement from Sinai and the law given through Moses, does not nullify a covenant. That means an unconditional covenant of promise. What he's saying here is that the promise that was made, like a last will and testament, was made and affirmed. Because if you read Hebrews 6, that just came to my mind right now, Amatathaton, the unchangeability or the immutable inability of God. When he promised it to Abraham, he affirmed it with an oath, swearing by himself. So you can't get much stronger of an affirmation or a confirmation of a covenant than by God, since he found no one else greater than himself to swear by, swore by himself. That's a pretty strong confirmed contract. The law, 430 years after God uttered that promise directly to Abraham, the law, or the legal part of Torah, spoken through a mediator, ordained through angels, not directly spoken by God, cannot disannul, cancel, set back, or even promote any kind of obstacle to the fulfillment of the unconditional promise with its universal horizon. Paul's making that very clear here. And I'm intending to exegete someday, do an exposition of Galatians where we'll round this thing up again and maybe make it hopefully by then much clearer than I am already tonight. So again, this is what I'm saying, Paul says, the law which came 430 years later does not nullify covenant or an unconditional covenant of promise so as to cancel the promise. For if the inheritance is from the law, which means from a pagan observance of Torah and the regulations that came from Sinai and afterwards, it is no longer from the promise. There's a mutual exclusivity here. But God unconditionally granted it to Abraham. Freely, I translate as unconditionally, because it means without condition. It's very simple. But if the inheritance is from the law... Or four, if the inheritance is from the law, it's no longer from the promise, verse 18. But God unconditionally granted it to Abraham by a promise. So then, why the law? The legal part of Torah. Paul says it was a temporary prosthesis because of transgression. Until the coming of the seed. Notice that. Until the coming of the seed. That's a critical temporal notion. Until the coming of the seed. And he's going back to that analogy because the heir receives the inheritance at a certain point in time, a point in time set by the father. And so we're, only the Holy Spirit can grant us understanding. That's why I quite literally prayed at the beginning, grant us understanding, because I can't do this. I can't grant the understanding that God will give you, and he will. It was a temporary prosthetic or prosthesis because of the transgressions until the coming of the seed to whom the promise was made. That's Christ. We could say until the coming of Christ. Or we could say until the coming of the faithfulness of Christ or the coming of faithfulness. 
So he's still talking about what about this law? It was because of transgressions. That is to give definition to them. The law was given as Romans 520 says. And when it was transgressions increased. And that goes into the whole morass of the man outside of Christ in Romans 7. The pious individual outside of Christ is a wretched man. So it, the law, this is 319b, was ordered through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now he's showing the weakness. God spoke a promise directly to Abraham. He appeared to Abraham, spoke directly, mano y mano, as it were, face to face. It's a direct promise. The law, though, when it came, it came, it was ordained or ordered by angels, and it came through the hand of a mediator, Moses, which shows two weaknesses of the law in comparison to the promise. And so, it, the law, was ordered through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator, he says, verse 20, is not a mediator of one. But God is one. Again, he's emphasizing that the voice of God that spoke the promise had no mediation. Is the law, he says, meaning with its forensic voice, and Pastor Messick hinted on this, the double-mouthed sword, which indicates a two-voiced Torah. There is the two-voiced Torah. There is in the Torah a promise a blessing. There is in the Torah a cursing and enslaving voice. And that's what these Jewish Christian teachers, missionaries, under the supervision of false brothers in Jerusalem, were bringing to these graced pagans a gospel which wasn't a gospel at all, a gospel of belonging to the covenant people of God by adherence to Torah or the enslaving and cursing voice of the law. So is the law, Paul says, with its forensic voice or its legal voice against the promise? What he's saying here is not just is it against the promise, because in a sense it is. But he's saying, is the law successful in its withstanding of the promise? In other words, can the law become an an obstacle to the promise? Is that's the sense here, and that's what my job is to do the sense in Nehemiah eight eight. So is the law then against the promise? That is, that promise spoken by the voice of God in Scripture and affirmed by an oath. Can the law do anything to cancel that or make an obstacle toward its fulfillment? That is, can the law commanded by angels through Moses successfully barricade the promise of God? Paul says, of course not. One of his 13 uses of meganoito, a very strong, perish the thought type of thing. Absolutely not, we'd say today in our overuse of the word absolutely. Is the law against the promise? Of course not. For if a law had been given, 
that have the power to give life. Then righteousness, which we know as deliverance or liberation of humankind, would be by the law. If there was a law that could relate to or create deliverance or salvation, then that salvation or righteousness would be by the law. But instead, the scripture has imprisoned everything under the power of sin, precisely so that the promise by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, please note that tweak, would be given to those who believe. Now, if you were here Sunday, given to those who believe, that reservation in Galatians 3.22 is missing in Romans 11.32 when he says the same thing. He imprisons everybody under unbelief and disobedience in order that he might have mercy upon all. He doesn't say mercy upon all who believe. The reason why there is that reservation here is because Paul is dealing with a local exigency. He's dealing with a local crisis of graced pagans who had faith elicited by the gospel and had put on Christ and had received the Holy Spirit at the report of the gospel and then they were being dissuaded and misled. Oh no, that's not enough. By... Jewish Christian missionaries under the supervision of false brothers in Jerusalem. So Paul puts that there not as a qualifier because again if you compare Romans 11:32 with Galatians 3:22 both of which talk about imprisoning everything under the power of sin or under the power of disobedience. In 3.22, the phrase given to those who believe is removed in Romans 11.32 because Paul is dealing in Romans with a far more universalistic view. He's widened the horizon universally. He's not dealing with a local exigency, a local emergency with three churches in northern Galatia. Galatia, he's propounding his gospel by which all receive mercy in Romans 11:32 more on that will be developing verse 23 now before this faithfulness came he's speaking of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ which happened in seven phases in the Christ event which we'll reiterate again and again on Sundays and other times before this faithfulness came there's another temporal notion before this faithful before this faithfulness came We were held in custody under the law. Who is we here? Ultimately, it is the whole of humanity held under the custody of the law. What Paul is talking about is the whole of humanity was in one condition, the status of slave, though it was an heir, until Christ came. But now that Christ has come, the whole human race has entered into an inheritance. But... The gospel is that which awakens people to that reality and elicits faith. Awake, you sleepers, the mass of humanity that hasn't understood this or believed this. Awake, you sleepers, and arise from the dead, 
and Christ will shine on you. The glory of Yahweh that is found in Isaiah 60 and verse 1 is interpreted bluntly by Paul as Christ himself. Christ himself. So before this faithfulness came, and that's equal to before Christ came, we were held in custody under the law, imprisoned, and here's another until, until the apocalypse of the coming faithfulness. The apocalypse of the coming faithfulness is the faithfulness of Jesus Christ demonstrated in his incarnation, followed by a life of obedience, vicarious obedience, culminating in the obedience even to the extent of death by crucifixion, followed by burial, and then by the upward trajectory, resurrection, elevation, and enthronement. That's the coming of faithfulness. That's the coming of Christ. That's not the second coming. It's not the second coming that changed everything. It's this coming that changed everything. So, verse 24, the law then was our confining custodian, just like a father who had an estate and had a son who was going to inherit this estate, had servants and tutors to take care of this child. In fact, they actually kept the child confined. It was a confining custodian. The law served as a confining custodian until Christ came, he says. So before this faithfulness, we were held in custody under the law, imprisoned until the apocalypse of the coming faithfulness. The law then was our confining custodian until Christ came so that we would be justified by faithfulness. That's Christ's faithfulness. Faithfulness and Christ are one and the same. You're interchangeable here. The coming of faithfulness is the coming of Christ and his demonstration of obedience for all humankind. Extent up to the extent of crucifixion. Verse 25, but now that faith, that is Christ, if you follow the logic here, has come, we're looking back at it now. We're not waiting until, we're looking back at something that has come. We are no longer under the power of that confining custodian. Confining custodian is J. Lewis Martin's translation. I've adopted it and adapted it because it's the best I've seen. So in verse 26, for you are all now, all the sons of God through the fidelity or the faithfulness that is in or that was demonstrated by Messiah Jesus. It's faithfulness of Jesus, the Messiah, participated in by the Galatians through the faith that the gospel ignited in them. Verse 27, for you see, all who were baptized into Christ, it's my contention here that baptized into Christ bypasses the ritual and sacrament of water baptism and the baptism into Christ is by the Holy Spirit into Christ. All who are baptized into Christ have clothed themselves with Christ. There is no Jew versus Greek, that's the end of that hostility. There is no slave versus free. There's the end of that hostility. There is no male and female. Now, there's two things here. First of all, 
In Joel 2.28, we talked about the universal gift of the Holy Spirit. I would insist that that gift is universal. I will pour, upon, pour out my spirit upon all flesh, even upon your male and female slaves. So he takes up both male and female and slave versus free right there in Joel 2.28 and 29. But there's something that goes back further than this. The first time we see male and female, we find it in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27. He made them male and female. Is Paul using that catchword male and female to refer to the original creation, which has now been superseded by the new creation in Christ Jesus? I think he is. But listen carefully. And here's a couple of, I don't know what I should call these, ringers maybe I'm throwing into the message. Genesis 1.27, speaking of male and female. And then Genesis 5.2, please note this. He made them male and female and blessed them and called them Adam. He called them Adam. It's a homonym. Adam, Adam, means mankind or humankind. He called them, male and female together, Adam, what's going on here is a comparison that Paul makes of Adam with Christ. He's talking about now that Christ has come, male and female are simply called Christ, the second Adam. Male and female, then, are taken up in Christ. They are enfolded in Christ So we have, maybe I should develop that further when we get into Galatians in total. So let's read it again. I'm moving up toward Galatians 4 again, back to it. And then to qualify this, let's start again with 3.28. There is no Jew and Greek or Jew versus Greek, the end of an antinomy or a hostility. There is no slave versus free. There is no male and female. Now the only antinomy that we have left in the new creation is not between male and female or between slave and free or between races, so-called. There's only one race, incidentally. And between Jew and non-Jew, the antinomy now is between flesh and spirit. And only that antinomy. It's an ongoing, endless battle that only ends when Christ comes in glory and we appear with him in glory. Now, it's, you're getting this incrementally. It's, this is an insight that's incremental. The light's going on, but it's not all the way on yet. Then he says, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Just like male and female, they were called together Adam. Now you, male and female, all together are Christ. One in Christ Jesus. And since you belong to Christ, and you do, he's talking here from a fulfilled condition. And since you belong to Christ, he's saying to these graced pagans, remember you belong to Christ already now. 
not after circumcision or not by submitting to circumcision. In fact, I'll tell you this. If you submit to circumcision, you males there, Christ will be of no benefit to you at all. Strong language. I, Paul, say this to you in Galatians 5.2. There were these false teachers speaking for Paul. Well, Paul said, Paul said, Paul meant, Paul meant. Paul says, I'm Paul, I'm talking to you now. You get circumcised, Christ is of no effect to you. So, since you belong to Christ, and you do, Romans 1, 6 says that, 1 Corinthians 3.23 says that, then you are Abraham's seed. You are Abraham's seed. But we thought Abraham's seed was Christ. Exacto mundo. You are Christ corporate. You are Christ. For as the human body is one, but has many members, meaning many functional parts, not including legs and arms only, but organs and internal organs, as the one body has many parts. And incidentally, this shows the efficacy and the calling that's upon every single Christian, not just those with communicative gifts, not just those with a visible gift, not those only with supervisory gifts or diaconic gifts. Every single Christian, where he or she is planted, is exactly as ineffective, as effective an ambassador of Jesus Christ as anybody else. All of us, all of you. Then your Abraham's seed, according to, and heirs, plural, heirs, plural, according to promise promise not according to the legal part of Torah now let's go back to Galatians 4 1 where we started so now what I'm saying is this he's see we gathered up I just gathered up for you all that he's saying now what I'm saying by saying all that starting in verse 15 is that the whole time that the heir is a minor he's no different from a slave even though and again this is I borrowed this phrase from Martin even though in prospect, he is the Lord of all. He's the Lord of all he surveys. He's the Lord of the whole estate, but he's too young to know what it means. He's too young to even care. All he knows is he's got a tutor. He's got uh, babysitters. He's confined to quarters. If he goes out riding, he has to have a riding teacher with him. He's got a, and he doesn't know yet. May I say that the majority of humanity doesn't know yet what they have and who they are. So awake, you sleepers, is not a message to believers only, but to the whole of the human race. Wake up, sleepers, and Christ will shine on you. He has come. The faithfulness has come. You're no longer a slave. You are an heir. And it's realized through promise, not through law. Verse 2, he is under guardians and managers until the set time appointed by the father, his father. Until the set time appointed by his father. 
until the set time appointed by his father leaps over into verse four and says when the fullness of time came which is the set time appointed by God the father God sent his son and when God sent his son his son took up universal human history into himself and changed it radically for in Adam all die but in Christ all will be made alive. Until the set time appointed by his father. So it is with us. Paul's speaking as a former Jew and he's speaking along with the Galatians as graced pagans, former non-Jews. Paul being a graced Jew, they being a graced pagan. And he's also, us here refers to all mankind as a monolith, as he refers to in the catchword male and female called Adam. He's talking about the whole human race here in the, but it's sort of the background universal horizon. He's not dealing per se with the universal horizon. He's dealing with a local exigency, but the universal horizon is looming in the background. And we pick that up in Romans. Now these are interpretive and I realize I'm on, I won't say dangerous ground, but new ground here because this is not something I have read in any of the commentaries. This is what the spirit kind of leads. So I'm treading very carefully. So it is with us. When we were minors, we were enslaved to the elements of the cosmos. Now, the reason why he is saying, I believe that the whole of humanity is in view here is because ta stoikia to cosmo, the elements of the cosmos are precisely sin, the flesh, death, and even the Torah or the law, which of itself is just and holy, good, and righteous, but taken in hand by the flesh or hijacked by sin, it's been hopelessly perverted. So it's one of those elements of the cosmos. We were once slave to the elements of the cosmos. That was, we were under sin. From Adam until Christ. Moses came along and didn't change anything. In fact, we could say he made matters worse if we look at it from one standpoint. Although from another standpoint, he did not, of course. Moses stood as a type of the deliverer that Christ would be. The prophet to come. Deuteronomy 18, 18 to 15. When we were minors, we were enslaved to the elements of the cosmos. That's sin, the flesh, death, and the law. We know from 1 John, all that is in the cosmos, that's the elements of the cosmos. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pretentious pride of human living, which is everywhere around us. The pretentious pride. In fact, today I understand is selfie day. The celebration of the pretentious pride of human living. Celebrated today. Look at me. First John 2.16, that's the elements of the cosmos. Who is under that enslavement? Just the Jews? No. Just the Gentiles? No. Just the Galatians? No. Who? Everybody in Adam. As my grandfather used to say, everybody and their brother. Now that's a universal statement if I ever heard one. But uh, 
Never mind. Just trying to get universal with a down-to-earth flavor here with everybody and his brother. Those under the power of the law. So when the fullness of time came, now Paul's talking about, now let's bring it into the gospel of the glory of Christ. When the fullness of time came, that is what? Like the time appointed by the Father for the slave or the son who's an heir, but just like a slave until he becomes an heir, to become the heir. The time appointed by God the Father was Christmas and thereafter through the crucifixion. Christmas through the crucifixion, through the resurrection and the enthronement. So when the fullness of time came, that's the time that the Father, God the Father, determined that the slave, Jesus Christ, who was obedient as a slave, he took on the form of a slave, did he not? Did he take on the form of a slave? He did take on the form of a slave and was obedient to the extent of crucifixion. But when resurrection came, God the Father declared him to be the Son, which means he was always the Son. The preexistent Christ became incarnate. He didn't come into being that day. He who was not in any time come into being, did not at any time come into being, was incarnated. Now let's look at it now. Let's hammer down a couple more things. Verse 4. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. There's the heart of the matter. That's the heart of the heart of Galatians. Galatians' heart is Galatians 4, 3 to 5. We're right in it now. But the heart of the heart is right there. God sent his son. What's the heart of the heart of John? If we want to blend John with Paul, Paul and John. John three sixteen. God so loved the world that he sent, that he gave his son. He did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but so that through him the world would be saved. God sent his son to save who? The world in John 3.17. So who is he talking about here when he says, born of a woman, born under the power of the law, like us, in order to redeem those under the power of law, that, my friends, in correlation with John 3.17, is the whole world. Because the law was taken in hand by sin under which the whole human race was enslaved. It's one of the elements of the cosmos, the constituents, the ingredients, the suprahuman powers from which we could never extract ourselves through piety or through religiosity or through human morality, but only through the power of of the spirit, which is the way Jesus Christ is on earth in the spirit. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the power of the law. Under the law means under the power of the law. So he too is like us, the minors for a time. In order to redeem, deliver, buy back those under the power of law. And that's all of humanity. Those under the power of law are those under the power of sin. And as 1 Corinthians 15.56 says, likewise, under the power of death. The strength of sin is in the law. But death, where is your sting? 
The strength of sin is in the law. And the sting of sin is the death that results from sin. So Romans 6.23, if you're going to talk about Romans Road, Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin, which means the results of being under the power of sin, is death. And that's for the whole of the human race, is it not? Have not all sinned and come short of the glory of God? Did not all sin when Adam sinned? Did not Adam sin pass into the whole human race? In Romans 5.12 and following. So the wages of sin is death, we would say, for all who are called Adam, all of humankind. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. For who? For the same everybody. Because in Adam... All die because the wages of sin that committed by Adam is death for all. But the gift of God, which is an unconditional blessing, is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord, for everybody. So we're plowing some new furrows here. So verse 5, in order to redeem those under the power of the law, that again is all of humanity, arguably, in order that we would receive the full privilege of legal heirs or the adoption of sons. This along with Galatians 3.26 refers to the sonship. Paul does the same thing in Romans, Romans 8, 1 to 11. He gets into the Christian spiritual life in the spirit, but then from 12 to 17, he gets into that being a state of sonship. The spiritual life lived in a state of sonship. He does the same thing here, sonship. The adoption as sons is what he's speaking about here, which is a particularly distinct title for eschatological Israel in Romans 9.4. For to Israel belongs the adoption as sons. So those who are adopted as sons can be called true, authentic eschatological Israel. This blends into another climax in Galatians 6.16, the Israel of God, the sons of God, the people of the faithfulness of Messiah, the seed of Abraham. These are all the Israel of God. So the whole time that the heir is a minor, I'm going to summarize a few things now. The whole time that the heir, H-E-I-R, is a minor And thus equal in status to a slave, that whole time is comparable to the whole time between Adam and Christ, which Paul develops with much more fine-tuned clarity, of course, in Romans 5, 12 to 21, and in 1 Corinthians 15, really beginning at 19, going through 49. So this is where I want to be very careful because this will have to be developed in an exegesis of Galatians either by me or someone else. The whole time the heir is a minor and thus equal in status to a slave is comparable or analogous to the whole time in human history between Adam and Christ. If we see Paul's horizon at its widest, Paul's horizon at his widest isn't shutting up everything under sin so 
that the promise would be given to those who believe. The universal horizon, the broadened horizon, is everybody's under disobedience that God may have mercy upon all. That background is there behind. Paul sees that horizon, but he's dealing with a local exigency or exigence. He's dealing with the thing that occasioned the epistle of Paul to the Galatians was a problem, a very problematic situation that he's addressing. Moses comes in between. That what, incidentally, that Paul's horizon at its widest is Romans 5, 12 to 21. You want to reread that sometime. Moses comes in between but does not change the minority status of humanity. Instead, the law that came through Moses only highlighted and deepened man's enslavement to sin. Now, this does not take away at all from the fact that the entirety of the human race was an heir, though kept under sin and then under the law until the apocalypse of faithfulness that came forth when Christ came. The apocalypse of Jesus Christ, Revelation 1.1, is just the same as the apocalypse of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, which came in the form of of his first advent. And every eye will see the one who was pierced. Every eye will see. Every knee will genuflect. Every tongue will confess. In all the universe, I heard all of creation sing a doxological hymn of praise to him. Why all of creation? Because this justification we're talking about is the gift of life. It is not just a giving of righteousness or a rectification. It is the creation of something out of nothing. Which the law couldn't do. But God can do. And God has done. So this does not take away at all from the fact when Moses came, that the entirety of the human race was an heir, though kept under sin until the apocalypse of faithfulness that came forth when Christ came. So in Paul's analogy here, which I've taken you from 3.15 all the way up to 4.5, Paul's analogy of the human interaction of the last will and testament and its mechanics, the time appointed by the father for his son to receive the inheritance from him, is correlated with or analogous to the time that the father of our Lord Jesus Christ appointed for Christ to be born of a woman. So that male and female would no longer be called Adam, but male and female would be called together Christ, if you want to put it that way. So Paul is not concerned here, and this is an interpretive point. Galatians is different from Romans. does not purport a different gospel. It addresses a different situation. So Paul is not concerned here in Galatians, as he is in Romans 5, with all of humanity per se, that is as a main subject, but with the Galatians, three churches that had defected, And I call them the graced pagans who had put on Christ at the hearing of the gospel and received the spirit of the son. 
right upon the hearing of the gospel, not when they were baptized in water, not when they were circumcised, not when they decided to keep a kosher table, not when they decided to honor Sabbaths and honor new moons and holy days and holidays and observance of Jewish holidays. So Paul wants them to know that at the hearing of the gospel, when Paul and his team came to them, they became heirs right then. They became, they went from slaves to sons in terms of legal status. But behind this limited horizon, Paul dealing with the graced pagans who believed is the universal horizon of all humankind. All of humankind, in other words, is the ultimate beneficiary of the promise. You say, prove it. Okay, I'll have to say this again. God spoke directly to Abraham and said, in your seed, all the nations will be blessed. All of humanity is the ultimate beneficiary of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and the promise of God, which is unconditional. If it's unconditional, then there's no conditions. If there's no conditions, then man in his worst estate is justified because God justifies the ungodly. That's what is so scandalous about the gospel, Romans 4, 5. And what we learn from, from Romans 7 and the great dilemma of the man outside of Christ, that's not Paul before his salvation. That's not Paul after his salvation. That's not Paul at all. That's Paul speaking with the voice of a pious person without the spirit, lost. Because as Psalm 39, 5b says in one translation, man, even in his very best pious estate, is nothing but vanity. tough for people to swallow. That's a tough pill. It's a horse pill. You got to drink it down with a lot of the water of the word. Again, this is shown clearly in Romans 5, 18 to 19. If you go right there, you see the whole of humanity benefited by the obedience of Jesus Christ, by the faithfulness of Christ, by the seven elements of the Christ event. You see that clearly. In Romans eleven thirty two, the reservation of those who believe is removed. So it's all, period, over and out. That, again, that horizon is already in Paul's mind. He's already got that in mind. But he's dealing with a shorter version of that horizon because he's dealing with a local exigence, a local problem of defection from the true gospel. He's concerned to show the graced pagans at Galatia that they are heirs according to the unconditional promise made to Abraham and to his seed, which they are now, so the promise was made to them. And not according to the law, as the Jewish Christian missionaries, sponsored by false brothers, if you want to read all about that, you read Galatians 1 and 2, false brothers in Jerusalem who sneaked in and spied out our liberty, Paul said, acted as enemy spies. And he said, you know how long I gave them to speak at our conference? Zero time. No time. So that the gospel, as is proclaimed by me now, the truth of the gospel would continue with you, because Paul did that. The gospel continues with us. Because he took a stand in his generation. And Mister, he was alone. Peter wasn't a, a, in, at his aid. Peter wasn't 
shoulder to shoulder with him at that moment. Neither was Barnabas. Thank God Paul took a stand. Because the gospel continues with us now. Because he did that in the AD 40s. You don't think things that arise in our lives that we have to deal with are important and have some kind of impact? They do. It might seem little things. But things that happen to you in your life, things with which you are confronted, about which you must make a decision, have lasting impact. And in many cases, impact that's historical, though it's invisible. In Romans 5, 12 to 21, in fact, all of Romans 1 through 5, Paul is dealing with a universal horizon, as he is in Ephesians 1, 9 through 11, as he is again in Ephesians 4, 8 through 10. He descended, downward trajectory, and he also ascended, upward trajectory, so that he could fill up everything with himself. He led captivity captive. Captivity isn't a group of people in some section of Hades. Captivity is all of creation under enslavement to corruption, all of humanity under enslavement to sin and Torah and the elements of the cosmos, and even all of human history that he gathers up into himself. So he brings history out of its roller coaster of progress and decline into a level place. In 1 Corinthians 15, 19 to 28, Colossians 1, 15 to 20, we see that broad horizon. We see that universal horizon. There he shows the universal horizon. Again, in Galatians, he's only going back as far as Abraham. But the unseen horizon, nevertheless, stretches out back to Adam. So again, Paul is dealing with specific controversy in Galatians. The accent is on the rectification of the Galatian pagans by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and not by the law or their adherence to it. The faithfulness of Christ Jesus is what is in view in the promise to Abraham that in his seed, all the nations will be blessed. The law with its legal voice and has two, the Torah has two voices. One, the promise, the other, the legal part. It's a two edged sword. The law with its legal voice that came through Moses 430 years later had no negative bearing on the promise and no power to cancel or annul the promise. The law showed, therefore, all the more dramatically the state of humankind under sin that leads to death, including the pious Jew, including the pious pagan. And there were many of those pious pagans. Ask Plato. Ask Aristotle. Ask Socrates and Sophocles and Democrates. So in closing, from the accomplishment of the first divine mission, that takes us to our divine mission project, the sending of the sun. From the accomplishment of the first divine mission, the sending of the sun.
there comes the second divine mission. The son of righteousness has arisen. There's healing in his wings, which is his rays, his emanation, which is the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified in John seven thirty eight and 39. When he was glorified, the spirit was given. That's divine mission too. Where do we find that? Well, let's close with it right here, 4, 6. Now, as you are sons, huioi plural here, God sent forth the spirit of his son, divine mission too. Into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. To send, in both Galatians 4.4 4 and 4.6, is ex apostello, a compound word. Apostello plus ex. It means to send forth, especially with a commission or commissions, and with a purpose. Why was the Son sent? To redeem us. That's his purpose. The Greek transliteration of the Aramaic for Abba literally meant my father, but taken over simply as father. And so this even more colorfully describes our identity with Jesus, who cried out Abba in his time of agony in Gethsemane. So 4-7, so that you, singular, are no longer a slave. You singular, all of you Galatians, all of you Tedelestai phalanx, all of you human beings, are no longer a slave but a son. And since you are a son, you are also an heir by God's act of adoption. God's act of adoption. God's act. You are sons by God's act. This again is the adoption of sons. Along with Galatians 3.26, Hosea 2.1, Romans 9.4, as distinct titles for Israel. No longer the status of a slave then, but a son. As such, you are an heir through God, or by God's act of adoption of you as a son. Thank you, Father. Now, as we asked at the beginning, I petition you again. Grant us understanding. 